April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Land Tawny is the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. The organization is a nonprofit sportsman's group based in Montana. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Land to get a better understanding of what he and BHA do. We discuss public land, taking action, handling criticism, and more. reached out to one of your team or no, they, someone at your team had reached out to me to set up a podcast and with you okay. and they wanted to do it over the phone and it physically pained me to say, I'm so it just sorry. Doesn't work. I don't do it over the phone. It doesn't work. I've, yeah. And I've done quite a few over the phone and it's just not the same thing. It's not. Yeah. No. Um, so I'm so, so I'm happy that we, we made waited. this work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So why are you here? Uh, I am here uh, for the, you know, the trade show um, in particular, but uh, in what I'm really here is to give away the Jim Range uh, Conservation Leadership Award. And they, this is something that AFTA started last year. Uh, I was the first recipient. And um, so I'm giving it away to a friend today um, who doesn't know about it. And, uh, and you know, I, Jim Range was a mentor of mine. So, like, last year I just teared up, like, when I, I didn't know I was getting it. And so it's going to be pretty cool to give it to him today because he has no idea. So kind of excited about that. Is he in, in the fishing industry? He is. Now, this isn't airing for like a few months. Who is Perfect. it? Perfect. It's Tom Sadler. So Tom Sadler, who's been around for a long time, uh, whether that was with the Isaac Walton League or Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Outdoor Riders Association. He's been a member of like, he's done a lot in Virginia around Trout Unlimited and then also uh, is a fishing guide as well. Like he does all this stuff professionally and then and on the side does fishing, like guiding as well. So. Oh man, I actually I might have to try to make that. No, I, I will I will be podcasting. Oh man, just podcasting all day. 5 today. <laughs> 5. It's amazing. Um, okay, well let's go ahead and just start where we start with everybody. Why okay. don't, why don't you tell me where you were born and raised? Sure, born in uh, Helena, Montana. Then moved to Missoula when I was 5. That's where both my parents are from. Uh, grandparents are there. I'm a fifth generation Montana and I so Missoula is like my place. Um, and feel very lucky to grow up in a place where you have public lands, public waters basically surrounding you and grow up with a family. My mom and dad were the first, uh, conservation lobbyists at the state legislature. And so I've been around conservation since I basically came out the womb. And, uh, and so I feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing today. So how did you come to do what you're doing today? Why don't we start for people who have never heard of you? Can sure. You t- t- tell me what your role is and what the organization is. Yeah. So I'm the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I've been doing that for six and a half years now. We're a national nonprofit that basically makes sure you have access to public lands and waters and then the fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. And so we have- When did they start? Because it they, feels like a pretty new organization. Yeah. They started around a campfire in 2004. Oh, is it that far back? That far back. When I took over six and a half years ago, we only had a thousand members though so you know it was really a volunteer organization really driven by great volunteers always had a lot of respect for them became an early adopter was an early member but no kind of professional staff because they kind of stayed at a thousand members for quite a while and now we're approaching 40,000 members all 50 states all Canadian provinces um, even have some internet I guess even I guess Canada is international but even more international than that mm-hmm. uh, chapters in 40 was it 45 states now and th- two Canadian provinces and one territory and so we've grown quite a bit which is awesome and I feel lucky you know again growing up in Missoula I got a wildlife biology degree at the University of Montana 
which, you know, gives me a good background. I don't use it all the time, but it gives me a good background. And then I worked for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which Jim Range was the chairman of at that point. And so I worked for them for three and a half years, and I worked for the National Wildlife Federation for eight and a half years. And so basically got a lot of the skills, not all of them, but a lot of the skills that I'm utilizing today with backcountry hunters and anglers. And so I feel very lucky to be here. So how does back, can I call it, can I just call it BHA? BHA, yeah, do it like with shorthand. Thank you. So how, what does BHA do? I mean, it obviously provides or or works to provide access to to landowners, but you guys do mostly policy work? Mostly policy work. You know, we've, uh, as we've grown, we've been able to do more, but so we do policy work all the way from like the state level. So that where that's with like a fish and game commission or state legislature, all the way out to Washington, D.C., and we have really up in Canada, we've worked more with the provisional governments um, than we have with Ottawa. But, you know, we're trying to give people a voice, engage them. We've had some awesome recent wins that will kind of describe what we do. So this last spring, early spring, there was a big public lands package that was a 700-page bill that had all sorts of different things in it. Um, but the biggest one that was in there was a land and water conservation fund and making sure that, that got permanently reauthorized. And so that's like the number one access tool in this country, you know, fishing access sites, uh, fee titles. So you're adding to the 640 million acres that we all own. And so that was permanently authorized, and which was awesome about that, as it was voted on 92 to 8 in the Senate and 363 to 62 in the House, which... The only time I think they vote like that anymore is when they're like going home, like you know, like when they want to go home for recess. <laughs> yeah. So that was awesome. Um, and then more kind of localized here in Colorado. Uh, just recently, there's state land here in Colorado is not necessarily open to hunting and fishing. It has to be leased back to hunters and anglers, and so uh, which I think is ridiculous. Like a state like Montana, all state lands are open to hunters and anglers, but here in Colorado it was different. And so we worked with the governor, with the state legislature, um, and ultimately got 100,000 acres of new access just this summer um, with the option to do another 400,000 acres. And so that's pretty cool, like just here in Colorado. And then we have a chapter in Ohio. There was no access at all. It was completely shut down to the public. So it's shut down to the public. So like these are things that are being leased for oil and gas or for timber harvest or for grazing, which is all great uses. But with that, hunting and fishing could not happen. And so what we did was we worked with the governor and said, hey man, this is this is the only place really in the West where that is, is the case. And so hunters and anglers aren't really going to get in the way of these other activities. They're pretty compatible. And so we, you know, these 100,000 acres should be open to the public. And so we, that got done. And I would say Tim Brass in particular, who's a staffer here, um, who does our state policy, was at the key, kind of the, at the tip of the spear on that point. Um, definitely the chapter helped. We had a college club that helped. There's a woman that interned with us and did like this huge study and kind of brought it all to light, you know, I mean, very professionally, um, which we're super stoked about. And all that together, you know, the grassroots voices, kind of Tim leading that charge, working with the governor, we got that done. Um, One that even happened more recent was in Ohio. And so think about there's not much public land in Ohio. Um, And so people really are starving for more. And so there was a piece of property that had been open to the public for a while, um, but then was on the chopping block to be being sold. It was timberland. And so what they did is they worked with the governor, worked the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, and we're able to add 38,000 acres, which is a ton of public land in Ohio, uh, to now permanently being open for public access. So that kind of like policy stuff, like that's really what we do every single day. And where that again is from like a local level all the way out to DC. Um, as we've grown, uh, we've been able to do a lot more on the ground projects as well. So this last September, we've deemed September Public Lands Month. That's when Public Lands Day is on the 26th of September. But our members picked up over a thousand bags of trash, I mean, ranging from Vermont to Alaska to up in Canada. 
just really, you know, I think we should all be picking up, you know, when we're out there anyways, but really focused on that month and picked up a thousand bags. And you know, at the same time, built some bridges, did some repairing and restoration. And so our boots on the ground, kind of like getting our hands dirty is something that's increasing. When I first started six and a half years ago, we might do one or two projects in a year. Uh, in the month of September, I believe we did over 45. And so these are folks that want to do stuff, and that's one of the things that they can do. So, are these volunteers or are these volunteers? Straight volunteers. I mean, we have we have thirty one staff. We have twelve in Missoula, where our headquarters are, Missoula, Montana. But then the rest of them are all across the country, and so their jobs are basically to facilitate our volunteers and help them uh, get things done. But majority of those projects were brought up by our leaders, like our volunteer leaders, and said, "Hey, here's a wildlife management area that we want to help clean up." And so that cha- that, that chapter coordinator who's a staffer, basically helps them like, you know, work that out with the wildlife management kind of um, authorities. But then they, the volunteers want to go in there and do the work. So it's, it's pretty cool. And I'm excited about that piece in particular. But I think that stewardship is something that uh, we all should be participating in. And when, we, when you do that, I think it builds camaraderie, but it also is a, it's a teaching kind of moment as well. Yeah, and it's yeah. confidence too, right? Yeah, absolutely. When to it's like, go and, and conquer it, again. Conquer again. I think it's like, taking care of your local place too, right? That is your place. We all have them. And we've all been to those places when there's been trash. And they might, I'm constantly picking up after I would say Slav hunters and anglers majority. It doesn't mean they're all hunters and anglers that are using that. It could be other users. <laughs> but this idea that, you know, people just are not mindful. I mean, I'm prideful. And I think when of my special places, and I think that's what happens all across the country is these volunteers are like, man, that's my place where I spent a lot of time. That's where I go find my solace. I want to make sure that I leave that place better when I leave it. So, I, that, that's a pretty exciting thing that we're doing too. Yeah, gee, so you're doing more than just getting access for, for land. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's access is a huge thing. I think there's this boots on the ground. And then, you know, it's really about the, you know, you and I could have access to this parking lot out here and you could even throw a line, right? But it's not where you want to fish, right? It has to be quality hunting and fishing habitat when you get there too. And right. so, you know, whether that's, again, like doing kind of restoration efforts or working out in Washington, D.C. to make sure that we have uh, like the Clean Water Act. And that's super important to waterfowl and super important to trout in particular. And so we worked very hard to try to stop the rollbacks that the administration was going to do on the Clean Water Act because that put at risk. I think 50% of the wetlands in this country and 60% of the intermittent streams. And so those intermittent streams are the ones, you know, that only run really in the spring. Super important to spawning. And so besides the access, access is, I would say, like the gateway drug, to be totally honest. And I think there's been a threat to try to steal that, you know, take away public lands. And so that's really been a rallying cry. And so access is kind of what brings people into the fold. But ultimately, you've got to make sure that you have quality fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. Okay, so is that when, like, when you guys are raising money, mm-hmm. is that what that's for, for restorative? Work? So we're different, I think, than, let's say, Trout Unlimited or the Ducks Unlimited, the Elk Foundation, who all really do habitat work. Our money that we're raising is to make sure that we elevate people's voices on policy. And so what we're trying to do is make sure the policies are in place that you can implement for quality fish and wildlife habitat, right? Okay, so why does that take money to elevate a voice in, in government? I mean, I think because. Like you're not one, lo- lobbyists or... Uh, I mean, I would, we're not, we have a registered lobbyist out in D.C. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we just hired her two years ago, uh, Julia Peebles, and she is awesome. And so, you know, I don't have to register as a lobbyist because I don't do it more than 15% of my time. Um, but if you do it over 15%, you have to register as a lobbyist. But what we're trying to do is really elevate people's voices, right? And so 
what are we up against? We are up against, you know, big industry who has a ton of money and a ton of lobbyists that are out in D.C. every single day. We can't fight with the money. There's no way that we can fight with the money. But what we can do is we can bring the people's voices out to D.C. And so when I talked about the Land and Water Conservation Fund earlier, that big win that we had in the spring, those votes didn't happen because a bunch of money was you know, like we were trying to, like, either uh, influence politicians by giving you know money to them, to their campaigns. One, we legally can't do that. But two, we just don't have that kind of money. What we did is we raised the voices of people, right, and let them know what was going on. And then they're calling, you know, their senators, they're sending emails, um, they're, you know, seeing them when they're back home and, like, asking them questions like, what are you going to do about the Land and Water Conservation Fund? And so at the end of the day, you know, they're at the – they've heard from all these people. They're like, okay, we will do something. And so they react to us, the people, right? I think that, you know, a lot of people don't – think that their voice counts in this country anymore and that's because probably you don't use it and so we're trying to make sure that people use it right and and to me that's our biggest job and so why does that take money it gets takes money to um, get people out on the ground to like be having these conversations um it takes money to uh i would say elevate this just like in the media world um it takes it takes money to fly people out to washington dc we did a huge fly-in uh, this last spring our largest one ever we brought 36 people out to dc and did 60 plus like meetings in a couple days and so this is where, you know, rank and file people from the states are going out and talking to their officials. And so that's what we're raising money for is really just kind of like elevate their voices. Okay, that makes sense. Because they couldn't do it. I mean, and not to say that you can't do it. Anybody listening to this can pick up the phone. What we're trying to do is make it easier and like disseminate information. And so that when you make that phone call, um, it's the easiest. I mean, everybody's busy and trying to make it as easy as possible for people to engage. You mentioned gateway earlier. <laughs> yeah. So is a gateway into getting people confident to make these steps and to join forces stuff like your shirt right now, public sure. landowner. Sure. It, was that always strategic? Did you guys think, you know what, we're going to go at this from a hashtagging and t-shirt wearing culture and then get them started that way, get this into their heads a bit and then grow them into being a bigger part of our family? I think it's a very good question. I think it's been very deliberate for sure. Uh, we did a public lands rally in Montana. This was like right after I started. So probably the fall after I started. So six years ago. And that's where we came up with this hashtag, keep it public. And I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't really know what a hashtag was. Like we were talking, and I'm 44, but we got around younger people all the time. And they were talking about hashtags and I know what they are now. <laughs> but so we put that on a t-shirt and, you know, keep it public now is like one of the rallying cries. I think the hashtag public landowner um, is something that, I don't know if you remember this, but Congressman Chaffetz from Utah introduced a piece of legislation that was going to divest 3 million acres of public land in the West, just like carte blanche, you know, like get rid of it, sell it. And so that happened on a Wednesday. We did a, you know, Facebook was really pushing Facebook live at that point. We did a Facebook live the next day. Half a million people watched that. Uh, Steve Ronello picked it up. Joe Rogan picked it up and went all with like hashtag public landowner and keep it public. And all that went to Chaffetz. And so people went after him on his Instagram account and, you know, you can go back to the pictures, you know, months behind and you get a notice every time somebody like makes a comment right on your post. And so with that hashtag and all that pressure, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, but probably thousands of people were contacting him both on social media, but also picking up the phone. And a week later he pulled his support from that bill. And I will tell you that I have not like, uh, I've never seen that in my 20 year career. Um, have a legislator introduce a bill one week and then pull their support back a week later. And that was the people like doing that. And really 
that cool factor or that like social media piece that we're talking about, that's what got people engaged. And you know, I think people need to do more than hashtag um, to help change things for the good. Uh, but that was a case where they definitely rallied around that piece and had some, you know, folks that got involved again, Steve and Joe, that helped amplify that. I would say threw a bunch of gasoline on a fire that was already burning and had results. And so I think there's, I mean, the, part of this public landowner shirt that I'm wearing and I love wearing it when I'm travel because I either get high fives like this morning. I mean, at 5.30 this morning when I'm leaving Missoula, I get a high five from a TSA agent. Like, that's awesome. We're all public landowners. You know, we own 640 million acres. Like, they knew the story. But then I have other people that kind of look at me sideways and are like, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh, give, give me, I'll give you like the 30 second, right? And when you give them that 30 seconds, you know, you are a public landowner. That's 640 million acres unique in the world this light bulb goes off in their head, right? And so this is an education tool more than anything. Give and, me the 30 second. I mean, the 30 seconds is, is that, you know, there's nowhere else in the world where we the people ha- own that this, this public land. And so, you know, it's 640 million acres here in the, in the United States. That did not happen by accident. It's only been around for about 130 years. And so it didn't happen by accident and we have it today and it's not gonna be carried forward by accident either. There's people that were trying to take it, you know, 120 years ago, there's people trying to take it right now. And so it's this, this awesome thing that we have, but it's up to us to like make sure it gets carried forward. And so people, I mean, when you, when you think about that 640 million acres, this is federally managed public land. It belongs to us, but they manage it for us. And so that's national forest, that's national parks, that's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that's Bureau of Land Management. I mean, that 640 million acres is pretty wide open for us to do what we want. And that is unique in the entire world. You know, there's places that are close, New Zealand, Canada, um, but here in the United States, you know, I think it's, if you look at like Europe and like the idea of like, you know, Robin Hood and like the King's game, right? That land belonged to the wealthy and that game belonged to the wealthy, right? And by penalty of death, if you were caught like shooting the King's deer. And so the United States wanted to be different in many different ways, no taxation without representation. But here in the United States, uh, part of that was, is that the wildlife were going to belong to the people and that we were going to establish kind of these public lands that belong to everybody. So I mean, that was a little bit longer than 30 seconds. No, no, that, but that's why you're here, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to hear all this yeah. from you. So I think that to me, again, I think once people start to hear the history of it, and again, you know, our country is so young and then our public lands really didn't get kicked off until Theodore Roosevelt became president. And he set aside 240 million acres of that 640 that we have today. And I think, you know, he... He was comes from he came from a very wealthy family, but he found kind of like his solace and challenge out on these public you know out in these big vast places. And so most people who are wealthy would have said, "I'm going to go buy all that stuff and it's going to be mine." But what he saw in that was like something that was truly American, right? Like that it didn't matter you know who your parents are, didn't matter how much money you made, didn't matter what background you come from, Republican, Democrat, Independent. That it, we're all on the same footing. That land doesn't care. And I think he saw in that was something that was truly American and wanted it to be available to everybody. And so, you know, against his own party's wishes, I mean, there were senators from Montana and senators from Idaho that fought him. There's a famous, it's called his Midnight Forest. And so he was establishing all these national forests in the West um, because at that point there was timber harvest that was going on and it was unsustainable, just kind of rape and pillage. Let's get as much as we can, make as much money and not caring about future generations. And so he was like, I am going to start protecting these national forests. Now, it doesn't mean you can't you know, harvest timber off of them, but it just has to be done in you know, a sustainable fashion. I think he said, you know, the best use for the most amount of people for the longest amount of time, right? So 
if we're going to cut logs now, let's make sure we don't cut them all. And so, you know, like this is a sustained kind of going forward. And so uh, I started setting aside these national forests. They called them forest reserves at that point. And Congress was like, no, you can't do that anymore. And so they pass they pass this law, and you know, as the president, he hits veto proof, and so he knows he has to sign it, and so it's gonna he's gonna sign it the next day. And him and Gifford Pinchot got together that night and did twenty one national forests, so they call it his midnight forest. And so he did that, and then signed it the next day that forbid him from doing it again, which I think is pretty rad. Um, and, that is incredible. And we wouldn't have, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, the majority of the national forests in the West um, came from the signing of that pen, so it's pretty cool. Unbelievable. Well, how can the government? Or- or, you know, or how can companies sway the government to give them property that is not theirs? So if you think about, I mean, well, this is, and this gets into, I think, all sorts of conversations, but there's, so there, there is the ability for the federal government to sell public land. And there's cases where we actually support that. And I would say, you know, especially um, where you have checkerboard situations, so you have private and public, private and public, and like either that public is inaccessible or it's really hard to manage because it's just it's not all one big block, right? And so in those cases, like we'll say it's like there's a thing called the Federal Land uh, Transaction Facilitation Act. Yeah, like say that five times fast. But what that <laughs> does is that if you sell a piece of property, then that money stays there. Instead of going to the treasury, it stays in this account. And so then you can use that money to go consolidate land someplace else, whether that's for access or wildlife habitat, whatever it is. So those are places where we support it. How does the government sell public land? They can do that through acts of Congress. And so that's when I bring up Mr. Chaffetz, who wanted to sell 3 million acres. That was going to go to the highest bidder, right? And so there's definitely folks out there that were licking their chops, whether that's for like a private kind of, uh, I would say, honey hole kind of ranch, right? Or it was to exploit it. And I think the majority of this is for ex- exploitation, to be honest. Um, but I think that, you know, there's also those that, you know, there's people that have a lot of money in this country that would love to have these private places, which I, I don't disagree with, but we're also not making... I mean, I talked to you about the 38,000 acres of new public land in Ohio and how we gained back some here in, in um, Colorado. We're really not making that much more public land. It's what we have is what we're going to have. And so um, divesting large chunks of that just doesn't make sense to us. And, and so, the, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of whether you look at like the 1872 mining law, which was established in 1872. That was if you went out west and you tried to or you um, worked on trying to get minerals, um, then that place where you were working, you would actually get property. Right. And so. So it was like the Homestead Act. So there's the Homestead Act, the first like that got people out west, which is where a lot of private land kind of ownership came from. Mm-hmm. 1872 mining law was kind of the second piece of that. And so trying to get people out west to settle it. Well, the west, when we're living, we're in Colorado, Denver right now, one of the fastest growing cities in America. And so I would say the west has kind of been settled in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the reasons it's been settled and people continue to move to Denver, to Missoula, my hometown, or to Bozeman, it's because of the quality of life that includes that public land and public waters. You know, I, I grew up in Montana and I married a, a school teacher. I didn't marry a ranch girl. And so I don't have this big chunk of like private land that's my own. I have private landowners that I know that I can go hunt on. But in Montana, I've got 30 million plus acres that are like my big backyard. And like that to me is, uh, that's what we're trying. I mean, that's, that's literally, I think at the crux of what BHA is trying to do, um, is really protect that kingdom that belongs to you and I and anybody that's listening to this. And shame on us if, if we're not, I mean, we have to be engaged because folks want to either exploit it or take it for themselves every single day, every single second. And all we have to do is screw up once and then it's gone. And so we have to be vigilant. And I hate the way that sounds. I, I, 
I want to be more aspirational, you know, and talk about these lands and how awesome they are, which they are. But there's a threat of them being taken away too. Every day. Every day. Now, if the pressure worked on Shafitz, Sh- 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 yeah. If that sort of pressure worked on him, why don't we go after all the politicians and all of the issues that way? I think so. That was a very direct. Like we knew, like it was three million acres, right? And so you had something, and again, the people just. It was pretty simple to understand. Uh, some of the things that are going on right now, I think, are a lot more nuanced. And so, you know, budgets in particular, right? So budgets are not sexy. You know, I'm not going to – nobody's going to hashtag a bunch of budgets and stuff. I mean, it's hard to get people engaged on that. But what's been happening pretty systematically over the last, I would say, two decades is that our federal – agencies have been starved and so you they don't have the money to you know do upkeep them and there's a what is it it's like 10 billion dollar plus backlog just at national parks for like maintenance right now and that's not because all of a sudden everything just fell apart it's because they haven't been you know main giving them appropriate amount of money to maintain that stuff and so again budgets are less sexy but you're starving the body right when that body isn't getting food or you're not getting the appropriate nutrients like then the body gets sick and so then what happens is oh maybe we should get rid of these public lands because we can't you know it's it, there's they cost too much and you know they're too vast and all these like things get brought up and so it's much more nuanced than i want to go sell 3 million acres right do they need a lot of maintenance uh i would say yes um i think that like road maintenance in particular i think that like fish passage you know i mean we're here talking fish all week, like fish patches, you know, on culverts, especially back in the woods, like those things get clogged up and that is bad for fish habitat. The maintenance, I think if we've been, if we've been, you know, it's like if, if you own your house, right. And you don't maintain it right yearly, there's these little things you have to do all the time. Well, you do, you don't do that for 10 years. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, now we've got, we've got to spend a ton of money to get this house like up to where it should be. That's really what's been happening is it's been systematically starved. And so but shouldn't the public land o- landowners go and volunteer their time and, and they, I think do that's, it? that's happening a lot, right? So backcountry horsemen in particular, when you talk about trail maintenance mm-hmm. without backcountry horsemen, uh, wilderness areas in particular, like we wouldn't have much access to because every single year they have like contracts with the forest service where they're not getting paid, but they're getting the ability to be as volunteers out there, you know, making sure that these trails are open. I mean, okay. So maintenance is primarily access. I would say access and facilities as well. You know, I think the national parks system, I don't know when the last time you've been to like, you know, Yellowstone or something, but those facilities have not been up, you know, kept up. See, and I feel like it's very fancy. Oh, really? Yeah. Because for me, when I think of public land Uh in Canada, anyway, when I go out in the bush, I'm making my own trails <laughs> sure, sure. and I'm pissing in a bush. Yeah. So it's, um, it, yeah, I just assume, I, I feel like a lot of the public land in North America, in, in America is very fancy. I, okay. So I would say fancy that I, I would, there's part of that piece. Um, but there's also like the management of that public land too. And whether that's, you know, forest management, so you have successional habitat, whether that's making sure that you're doing wildlife studies, you know, kind of like, and where sage grouse are at or where, you know, a particular bird species or animal species is at to make sure that we're maintaining kind of there's tons of, I'm not, I'm not a total budget like expert, like, and I can tell you exactly where all this money is spent, but there's the maintenance piece, which is a huge one. But then there's also just the management of these public lands. As yeah. Well. There's more to it. Do Absolutely. you guys work with any of the indigenous tribes? I mean, for thousands of years, they manage land. 
We do. And I think it's more on a specific, like on, on specific places, you know, play space. I wouldn't say there's like this overall kind of like yeah. working relationship. I would give you one in particular that we've been working on is on the Rocky Mountain front in Montana. So this is where the plains meet the mountains in Montana. An awesome, awesome landscape. Super important to the Blackfeet Nation. It's where their creation story is from. Um, very, uh, I mean, very, very, I guess, important to them. And it's also an awesome hunting and fishing place, which is probably one of the reasons why it's important to them. Um, there was a bunch of oil and gas leases that were uh, let, I think that back in the 70s. And so we've been working with them to retire those release, uh, leases, and whether that's through acts of Congress or there was just you know a company that worked with, I think, the Wilderness Society uh, to, to basically get paid to not develop. And so... Things like that, and I think around, you know, uh, the National Monument Review in particular, um, you know, with Bears Ears and Staircase Escalante, super important, again, to tribal communities and was super important to us. Um, you know, not only, I think, the, the places there, but we were pretty concerned about the precedent that that was setting. You know, Roosevelt signed into law the National Monument, you know, Antiquities Act, which helps establish national monuments, established the first one, Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And so you'd have this thing that, that really hadn't been touched since Roosevelt started it. And every single president, Republican and Democrat, had used this to you know, protect lands that were important to people. Now you had this national kind of review that had over a million comments. All 99% said, don't touch it. And then you know they rolled back protections in Bears Ears and the Staircase Escalante in particular. And that's something that, um, that we were definitely on the same page as tribal communities. Yeah, and just for people listening, Corley McKenna oh, yeah. from Patagonia. Patagonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, came, she flew in actually to meet me in California. She was a little bit bound because of an ongoing or like a lawsuit that was about to They launch. do have a lawsuit that's still ongoing. Um, and I, you know, ultimately I... I I think protections will be restored, I and mean, then we'll see what happens in this election this next year too. Which is one of the things that we were concerned about. April is that since you know all these protections have been established since Roosevelt, and everybody kind of just this was like this great thing. Now it becomes a political football, right? Like, okay, so protections are restored. Well, what happened? They're going to be taken away again, restored. I mean, they, nobody had touched it before. Now it becomes this again, this political football that and I think you know was talked about. Like, we didn't have access to this. Well. We had plenty of access in there. There was roads. You could hunt. You could fish. You could recreate in there. It was more about oil and gas development and then coal in particular in Staircase Escalante. And so the access, the only thing the monument, monument protection did was basically take away the ability to develop those resources. You know, I'm not, we're not against distraction. I don't want anybody listening to, think, listening to think that. But there's these special places, and that's the Rocky Mountain Front. I mean, Bears Ears has been talked about by multiple tribes. It's not just one, multiple tribes for generations, thousands of years. It's just this special, special place. And so, you know, we're not making any more of these special places. Let's make sure we protect those. And I think we as Americans and Canadians have done a good, I and mean, I was in the Purcell Wilderness earlier this year. Like we've done a good job figuring out what the best of the best is, and let's protect that. And at the same time, then let's responsibly, you know, develop other resources, other places. Like without that development of resources, our countries don't work. Like we have to do some of that, but we have to figure out, you know, there's these special places here, but over there, that'd be a better place to go develop. So. Are there any extractions that are just an absolute no for you? Or is there always a compromise somewhere in there? Uh, I mean, I think it's an absolute no and place-based, right? So whether that's Bristol Bay, whether it's the Boundary Waters, I just got back from the Boundary Waters. I was there all last week. And there's a proposed copper sulfide mine just a quarter mile south of the Boundary Waters. This is a Canadian company too? 
No, this is <laughs> this is a uh, <sighs> it's a foreign-owned company. I think they're uh, they're a Chilean company. That's where the parent company is. And there's some really bad stuff that's gone down in Chile because they don't have the same laws that we do. But we we went around this corner where the like, we're about 1,200 feet from where this proposed mine is going to be. And so there's wild rice. Like you come around this corner and it's this wild rice. I don't know if you've ever had wild rice. It's absolutely like, it's not, it's not like Uncle Ben's wild rice. Like this is like amazing kind of, uh, it's hard to describe unless you've had it. Um, but there's this, there's this marsh with all this wild rice. And of course, since the wild rice is there, there's ducks and geese in there. And we're sitting there and we'd all just been in the boundary waters. It's just a little bit outside. It's like, man, can you imagine like a huge industrial like copper mine right here? And just what that means to that spot right there. But then all that water flows north up into Canada into Hudson Bay. And so when there is a spill, because there's never been a copper sulfide mine that hasn't leached like, you know, heavy metals and toxins. When there is, all that water goes north and it just drifts into the boundary waters and Aquatico and then up into Hudson Bay. And to us, that's just not a place. You know, Bristol Bay is not a place. And so then I sometimes I get the question, well, where is the place? That's not our job, you know, necessarily to say where it should. I mean, I think we could maybe think about that in a better way. I think it's, again, our folks on the ground in Minnesota, people up in Alaska, and Bristol Bay is well documented, but in particular Minnesota, they came to us and said, this is our special place. Like, and we need the, your help in protecting it. And so that's where we've been. We Last week, it was a bunch of you know outdoor writers that were there. Um, Anthony Licata was there. Um, and it's really trying to elevate that voice again so people know about this special place, what the risks are, and get them engaged so they can help stop it. Which organizations mirror what you guys do? I think, you know, when the, when the folks were sitting around the campfire in 2004 when we were established, which is pretty rad, that's where we came out of, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been around a campfire and solved the world's problems at night. But they looked at the playing field within the sportsman's community in particular. And while, like, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Trial Unlimited, other, some other organizations work a little bit on, you know, they have public land kind of portfolios. Nobody was focused on public lands in particular. And so that's really, I think, our niche. Um, I would say, again, TRCP, Trout Unlimited, um, National Wildlife Federation to some extent, uh, Isaac Walton League, like we work pretty closely with them on policy. But our organization is unique in the grassroots nature of 40,000 um, that TRCP does not have. And then Trout Limited is focused on cold water fisheries, which is rad. I mean, they do amazing work. We work with them all the time on many issues. But their niche is cold water fisheries, which is, you know, that's why they've been very successful. But ours is much broader. Um, and so when you think about, you know, the Elk Foundation, or the Mule Deer Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, again, all doing great work. Majority of that's on private land, though they're doing a lot of public land work as well. That's more about habitat directly. They're not really being, they're not using their grassroots for advocates. You know, they're helping raise money and they're doing some boots on the ground stuff. I don't want to simplify that too much, but, you know, they're not asking their members to call it Congress. And so our focus and niche is public lands, public waters, and then, you know, making sure that we engage people in the process. Are you active in every state? We have chapters now in 45 states. We have members in all 50, but uh, the states that we don't have chapters in yet, Hawaii, Nebraska, uh, South Carolina, Delaware, there's one more. Oh, it's uh, West Virginia. Okay, why not? So we don't go April, like we don't try to go establish, like if, like in those states, like and I would love to go to Hawaii and be like, oh, we're going to go establish a chapter there because I could spend a lot of time there. Hawaii is a cool place. Um, it's much different than Montana. But we don't go places unless there's active people coming to us. Okay, but and if so, they came to you? But they came to us. So right now, out of those five, I would say Nebraska, South Carolina, and West Virginia are all over us right now. And so they'll, I don't want to preempt that. We establish our chapters every year at our national meeting, our rendezvous, we call it, and that'll be in June. 
I almost guarantee that those three states will be chapters. You know, we have Alberta and British Columbia, Yukon Territories just came on. Um, Ontario has been talking to us and Saskatchewan. And so I'm not sure exactly when they're going to come on. But again, like we've been growing so fast that we can't we can't afford to just kind of like go places unless there's a ton of energy there. And, you know, when I talk to the board, you know, it's like we also can't afford when there is that energy not to like facilitate that energy. Right. Um, Because people, you know, if if you don't if if you don't listen, they're going to go do something else. And Mm -hmm. so our job, again, is when you're banging on the door is to absolutely listen. And, you know, when we brought on chapters this year in Oklahoma and Kansas in particular, you know, I was super excited because of the energy. I got to go to both those places and meet these folks on the ground. Two places that don't have a lot of public land, but they have a lot of passion. They want to grow their estate. And man, since they became chapters back in uh, May, they've just been absolutely crushing it. And, you know, I talked about Ohio. Ohio became a chapter two years ago. You know, and like the sophistication of our chapters and like the energy, it's just it's just, it's changed a lot, I guess, in the last six years. When a new chapter comes on, they're just ready to roll and hit the ground. Right? I just can't believe how much you guys have done in six years. Yeah, it's pretty, it's it's phenomenal. I would say that uh, um, there's definitely growing pains with that. Um, and I very much appreciate the patience from our grassroots on that piece. Uh, and then also the patience of the, our North American board. But at the end of the day, we're driving, you know, every single day. And so as long as, you know, we're still moving up that hill, you know, we may take a couple steps back once in a while. But our volunteers drive that every single day. And our job as staff is just to try to keep us on the tracks. What's the deal with Canada? I don't necessarily understand the access issue in British Columbia. So I think it's more, so there's, it's about use, I would say. So I think there's similar things here down in the States, but a rampant illegal ATV use up in uh, Canada. Um, again, there should be places for ATVs to go, but there should be places, you know, where they can't go. And if it's illegal, you're talking caribou stuff right now. Uh, I mean, I, I was talking more probably in like British Columbia. No, no, no. Yeah. Like, I mean, carib- caribou species areas. I know that this is a highly contested. I think it's, subject. I think it's like anywhere, right. And necessarily right now there's places where you can, there's places where it is legal to go off trails and retrieve game or even drive around, which, Again, we could have conversations about that, but I think this is more about just like illegal kind of use. And I mean, everywhere, uh, right? So I think that's a big piece. Um, I think that there, there's similar protections. I mean, we're working on the Bighorn um, up in Alberta. There was a, like a Bighorn that was going to be a provincial park um, that would provide protections. And I think that was mostly from uh, oil and gas development. Okay, which sounds about right over there. And so there's a lot of oil and gas is happening, especially in Alberta. Um, in British Columbia, it's more timber. And so I think it's trying to, very similar way, but it's, and I don't, I'm not an expert, which is why um, I love our volunteers on the ground up in British Columbia and Alberta and Yukon, is that they're the experts up there and that we just kind of try to help them. I think as we're growing and we're, we have um, a part-time staffer up there, we're looking to hopefully hire somebody in 2020 up there full-time. And so that that person will then be able to facilitate. But again, like it's working on, you know, resource management plans, uh, travel management plans, very similar stuff down here, but it's very specific to Canada. And then, you know, again, this Bighorn Provincial Park, Here's this place that's special. It's really important to Bighorn Sheep. How do we make sure that's protected into the future, right? Yeah. And if there's oil and gas development happening over here, how do we make sure it's protected over here? So. I was going to say, so what happens? You just roll in one day and there's like a fence up that says no access. But then I remembered that Shell did exactly that. They did put up fences that said no access. And I think, so it's the access piece, right? And I think, remember, like, think about that. Like, if we don't have access, then people... 
they have less of an affinity. Like, why would why should I care about wildlife? Why should I care about conservation if they but can't? They do do that, right? They they put up fences oh, and signs that say absolutely. you can't come in. Absolutely, and so I think I think that's a that without that access, but that okay. At the end of the day, let's say it's a special. You talked about like this, you know, the, like these really important you know headwaters, right? Besides the access piece, if they screw all that up as far as habitat goes, like that's just not good for anybody, right? I mean, not good for clean water and drinking water. It's not good for the wildlife habitat, and it's definitely not good for fishing. And so the access is a, is a big piece of that, but I think then there's the habitat piece on the other side of that as well. Whew, you've bitten off a lot. <laughs> Are you exhausted? Uh, you know what? I am some days, April, but you know, it's like... Our, our peeps are so awesome and it's so restorative. Like I call it like filling my bucket. You know, when I go someplace and I, you know, I'm going to, again, I'll bring up Kansas. I went to Kansas to be totally underwhelmed. You know, here's this state. It's, I felt like it was going to be flat, which it kind of is, but like, you know, pretty monoculture. Um, and that, you know, there wasn't going to be like this passion for public lands. And I go there and we, and you know, you look at most of the public lands there all um, around water. So places that have not been developed, right? They could not develop them for farming basically. And so you go around and you see these places and how dynamic they are and there's differences. And then also the passion of the people. And I, I walked away from that trip just being like, oh my goodness, like, like our people are fired up. And so I get my bucket filled all the time. Um, I think that trip to the Boundary Waters last week was restorative in many ways, you know, the kind of calmness of going across these lakes with a canoe and like the paddle strokes and kind of how life slows down a little bit. And so I get that once in a while, but I would say it's mostly the people that kind of put fire in my belly and fill my bucket. And, um, so do I get exhausted? Yes. Do our, our staff, do they get exhausted? Yes. Do our volunteers get exhausted? Yes. But this isn't like a nine to five thing for me, you know, and I talked a little bit about my family's background. My dad was the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation after he was at the state legislature. Um, and so he was really involved in conservation as well as my mom until my father passed away. And, and so this is like a life's calling for me, you know, and so. Did he see you do all this? No, that's like, I think that's like one of the, and, I, and that's partly, he died when I was 20. And so. That's like, like I've got a picture of him in my office, got a picture of Jim Range in my office, got a picture of one of my uh, mentors, uh, Jim Pazowitz in my office. They're always kind of like sitting behind me, like on my shoulder, right? Like, you know, and like, don't screw this up is like, maybe it's like some of the part of the way I feel. And in some ways that sometimes it feels pretty heavy, but it's also like pretty inspiring too. And, and so, you know, I don't, I know when I'm, when I stop thinking about it, like all the time, that it's probably time to go do something else. And right now, I mean, my brain is turned on to this thing all the time. And the only time it's not is probably when I'm out in the woods and the waters or I'm with my family, you know, and I, I do as, as best I can to turn it off when I'm around my kids and my wife yeah. uh, for their sake, but also mine, you know. Um, but other than that, my, my brain's thinking about this 24-7. So. Is your mom super proud of you? She is. Um, and it's... Uh, she is, and my I have another sister who uh, worked for Ducks Unlimited out in Washington D.C. until recently, and then she moved back home, and she's working for the Montana Conservation Voters. Uh, my mom's still involved in conservation in a big way, and so it's pretty fun to get around, sit around the you know the dinner table, and talk. And you know, I'm super proud of my mom, um, and so for her to like be proud of me, you know, it's it's, uh, it's again, I think it's that inspiring kind of thing um, that that again, don't screw it up. Yeah. yeah. But don't put too much pressure on yourself. No, I, 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 and I, here's like, I think, you know, all I'm trying to do, I got, you know, these two young kids and my daughter, Sydney in particular, who's 11, like she's like, she, she watches what I do 
And just like, I mean, she does reports at school about public lands. You know, she did a book report on Jim Pazwa. It's like a book that he'd written. I mean, oh, she, like, Sam told me about this. She's like, she's like going to be, he said she's going to be the next president. Well, of the I, her, her hashtag is sinful president. <laughs> oh, um, <really? laughs> but she's like, I mean, from a young age of like, you know, when I first started this, that was six years ago, but I was doing stuff like this before. Like I'd get up and talk in front of a crowd and she'd try to take the microphone away from me, right? I was introducing a senator once and she came up on stage and like I, and I ended up handing her the microphone. At that point, she's like, ah, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> but she's want to be engaged, right? Yes. And, and so I feel, back to this like pressure piece, I feel like all I'm doing is like doing my part right now. Just like all these people that came before us, you know, and whether that's like the Roosevelt's, the Gifferman shows, the Aldo Leopold's, the Rachel Carson's, thousands of other people you don't even know the name of. Like all I'm doing is just playing my part right now to pass it on to Sydney or others like her, right? And like, like that's that's our job. And so I feel like I mean, there's the pressure, maybe a little bit, but it's like do what you can while you're here, and then pass it on so they can have the same conversations. And unfortunately, well, and fortunately, they're gonna be having the same conversations that we're having right now. Yeah, yeah. There's no way around that. No. Let me ask you this. This is an uncomfortable one for me. Yeah. Uh, being a Canadian sitting here, but how long has Trump been? in office for three years this November. Okay. And so that means that you've been able to witness two different presidents during a time in the six years. Have you noticed a change in the public? And if you have, are they more uh, taking on that, you know, it's, it's mine and we really, really want it. Or are they taking on more of an attitude of sell it off and make money? Like, have you, have you, have you seen a shift in attitude in the general public? Really good question. Um, So, So I've been doing this for about 20 years um, and at BHA for six and a half. And I would say that really, I, you know, I've been involved in like public lands kind of conservation that 20 years. I would say when Obama was president and the takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge by the Bundys, and if you remember that, like where they came in and said that you know, they're trying to protect these ranchers and they took over this national wildlife refuge in Oregon like by with force um, though nobody was there but they had guns and like they took it over for like 40 some days that was the start of people being like what like like really awakening that I think a lot of people took for granted what public lands and public waters were uh, they didn't know the story of where they kind of uh, came from and so you know they, they knew that they hunted and fished on these lands but really didn't understand kind of where they were and who managed them I think that critical point when the Bundys took over Malheur National Wildlife Refuge and then Chaffetz after that and now an administration that is really threatening a lot of the things that we love I think that's been very galvanizing and I think that you know it says at the same time like we've kind of been in the middle of all that and and so we've been able to play a role of education in particular and then also you know empowering people that you know because and I think people feel like just overwhelmed and either it's, it's all the noise because there's so much and or they feel so small compared to these big, huge, like kind of forces. And so to answer your question, I think that I think people are more aware of their public lands than they've ever been in my career. And I think that is much more about let's protect them for all um, rather than let's try to privatize them. I think that the privatizers, again, with that Schaefer's example, you know, you went from let's let's sell these public lands to then let's transfer them to the States, which is just, in my mind, a short term, short term kind of a step to the sale um, to now it's more like this dismantling piece, you know, and I like that's budgets. That's 
what's happening with the Bureau of Land Management right now, whether that's leadership or them moving their headquarters out here to Colorado and really breaking up kind of that leadership that they have in D.C. Like the, the fight is becoming much less in your face and much more nuanced. But I think the people have been, they've been empowered, they've been galvanized. And, and so I've, I feel... I feel like the glass is half full, to be totally honest, and that, that we're actually in a better place. And I, I look at, I'm a real big student of history, and I think that's because of my mentor, Jim Posowitz. And you look at some of the bad things that have happened in this country in particular, late 1800s, like market killing is going on, right? So people are going out and they're slaughtering elk and bison and antelope to put on the tables here in Denver and in New York City and in San Francisco, right? Like high end. And so with no care of if those animals are ever going to be there, you know, they're just, let's just go kill them and put them on the tables. So that's when like wildlife protection has really started was in the late 1800s. And so where you couldn't sell like wildlife anymore. So, um, you know, if you get an elk steak in any restaurant right now, that was privately raised. That was, that's not a wild animal, which that's a whole nother conversation, but you cannot sell wildlife legally. And, and so that helps stop that. Then you go into the dirty thirties, right? So like you have the dust bowl, which was created by policies, but you have the lid that's coming off the prairie. You have dust storms that are, you know, going from, you know, the Midwest all the way, like hundreds of miles off of like the East coast, like seaboard where ships are being covered in sand. And out of that comes uh, Pittman Robertson act, which where we tax our ammunition and, uh, and guns to put that money back to wildlife. You have the duck stamp that comes out of there in 1934. And so that's like where as a duck hunter, I have to buy a duck stamp every single year. Um, and that money goes back into national wildlife refuges and helping, you know, promote like duck populations. So out of some bad came some good. Then you go into like the 1960s, Rachel Carson writes silent spring about, and this is like when rivers are literally on fire, right? Like, I mean, there's so much pollution in these rivers that they're on fire and like they're running like orange and red, like just disgusting things. Well, what comes out of that is like clean air and clean water act, like the late 1970s. You have the wilderness act that comes out in 1964. So you have these bad things when I'm trying to paint that picture to you. And every time we've had something pretty devastating happen, you know, for our fish and wildlife populations or just conservation in general in this country, the people have responded. And so right now with these threats that I would say um, are, are pretty serious, the, are mostly being put forward by this administration, I feel like it's a galvanizing thing. And what's the good that's going to come out of that? I mean, this public lands package that just passed, you know, this spring, those were veto-proof votes. So the president had to sign it, basically. And and so I think the people are responding. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's been a wake-up call. Um, and hopefully, you know, that, that this galvanization that's – galvanization, I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but bring all these people together that – good things will come out of that. And that's what I really believe. And so I, I, I'm, I'm much more positive. I think, I mean, yes, there's threats. I mean, there's so many things that are going on that it's like, I mean, the list is so long, but I think that it is bringing people together. And once administration changes, it will change whether that's in a year or another five, but things will change. And people, you know, I think, you know, that pendulum that swings back and forth, you kind of wish it stays in the middle. Right now, it's really gone to one side, and it'll swing back the other way. And that's, again, like I think looking at history um, and just understanding how those kind of things, like just watching those things happen, is that this pendulum will swing back, and I think we'll be ready for it. And I'm not just talking about backcountry hunters and anglers. I'm talking about kind of like the community in general. Um, you know, something we haven't talked about is that like there's this emerging kind of hunters and anglers who play like this conservation role, you know, in North America. Like that's, that's been the, the leaders of kind of wanting to protect wildlife and wildlife habitat. 
there's emerging kind of other outdoor recreational users, you know, whether that's mountain bikers or kayakers or hikers that I think that are coming to the fore that hopefully I think that we can work together and that there'll be more people that care about, you know, what you and I care about. And yeah, do, would you do it differently now or would they do it differently now and not have it be backcountry hunters and anglers? Would it be more inclusive? No, I mean, it's our name. It's our name. I mean, we have, we just did a membership survey and it came back that we had like 3% of our members don't hunt and fish. So it's, it's not that many, but there are folks. I, I, you know, I really try when I'm talking in front of a crowd that isn't all hunters and anglers to talk about, Again, how this 640 million acres belongs to all of us. And while backcountry hunters and anglers, like hunters and anglers is in our name, the work that we're doing, you know, it's for all you know users. And it doesn't, you know, like we, yes, we have that hunter and angler kind of like tint or uh, I guess influence on it. But really the work we're doing is for everybody. And so would I change the name? Absolutely not. Because um, I think it, it, one, it provides um, an identity. It also... I think it helps us get in some places that others can't. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's, I mean, it's 97% of who we are. And so, yeah, I wouldn't change it at all. Is the majority of your people, I mean, are, you, are these just members? Like how you guys are a membership organization, yep. obviously, right? People pay to be members. Yep. 25 I, bucks. Okay. So for a year. Mm -hmm. When I see these rendezvous, yeah. here, I'm, just, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Let me just lay it out there yeah. well, about being, you know, Yuppies, or what's the word for it these days? Hipsters, Hipsters or like whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm wearing a fiberman hat right now. I, like, what, but, why, why, where do these attacks come from? Well, I just don't understand how fellow hunters and anglers could possibly have anything negative to say. Who cares if you have beards and flap rims? Good question. Um, and we're much bigger than, I mean, but different than that, but we get pigeonholed that way. I think that uh, we're new. And there's been people that have been in our community for a long time. And uh, we don't, part of our success besides kind of like these outside pressures that we've talked about and just kind of like this universal thing that is public lands, I think that belongs to everybody. And so we're talking to everybody versus niches. Part of our success is that we've been calling it like we see it. And I think within the hunting community in particular, uh, they don't like to say bad things about Republicans in particular, like, like out in the public. They will do things behind closed doors, um, and that's the way this country has worked for a long time. Um, they, I think they're easier to jump on Democrats. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, or an independent. If you do something good for conservation and for hunting and fishing, we're going to applaud you every single day. And the next day you do something that is antithesis to that, we're going to hold you accountable. And, and that's different than the sportsman's community. I can tell you that right now. And so I think there's, there's a little bit of angst around that. Um, I think there's angst that we're the new kids on the block as well um, and that we're shaking up the power structure a little bit. Um, and then I think that, you know, everybody talks about wanting, you know, to recruit the next generation of like conservation leaders. And they talk and they talk and they talk. And, you know, our membership server that I've referenced already, we, it came back that 70% of our members are 45 and younger, which like bucks the trend, like, of every other conservation organization, whether that's hunting or fishing or just straight up conservation, I got bucks the trend. Like that's flipped the other way. And even probably like 70% is like 65 and older. Right. And so we have this new cohort, which they should be embracing, but they're, they're not maybe cut out of the same mold. Right. And so I think that's threatening. And I think that, I think that's why some of the angst happens. I also think when you're in the arena and you start to get stuff done, and I would say, especially from the extractive industry side, 
targets get put on our back. And they've been, you know, we were small, like two strategic targets too. Very. And that, but like when we were small at like 2000 members and they went after us, I was like, what is going on? Like they either like, they see what we're going to be and they want to put us down or I, I just didn't get it. Now, you know, we're making much more of a difference and we're much louder than we were. I mean, we have a huge megaphone. I always talk about how we, you know, punched way above our weight at 2,000 members, and that's because I think our media team was absolutely badass. Um, Katie McCaleb is one of the best in the industry. I think our social media has been like some of the best in our industry. So we were we've been good at that. So we punched above our weight, but now 40,000, like we are, you know, we're we're emerging as you know a force to be reckoned with. And so I I say all that, and I don't want to I don't want to categorize everybody that way, but I do feel like that we're threatening some people and, and, at my, at, you know, I could, I could talk about that and, and try to surmise why, which I kind of just did, but I would rather us just like keep doing what we're doing, you know? And like, you know, I think my, my mom told me this is like, don't get in a pissy match with a skunk, you know, don't roll around in a mud puddle with a pig cause they like it, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. and like, let's just keep doing what we do, you know? And like let that noise on the outside, like sometimes we address this stupid green decoy thing. Um, See, this is what I'm talking about. I'm learning about all this. And I had captains for clean water on yesterday. Yeah. And they, and Chris and Daniel were explaining to me that there are actually like five or six people that work for, that are hired by certain corporations that go and create all these accounts and, yep. and their job is to confuse the public. Uh, it just, it was really surprising to me. Really Absolutely. And I, and I, so once in a while we address that stuff. Uh, we did pick up some green decoy shirts last year. Right. Um, they sold really well um, and have people like, you know, I'm a green decoy, like out hunting or fishing or whatever. Um, but most of the time, April, we just keep doing what we do, you know? And it's like, it's fuel, right? Like if you're, if you're in the arena and that is happening, like you must be doing something all right, you know? And so we just, we just keep the pedal down and it creates extra work for us. I have to explain it, you know, to people a lot. Um, sometimes I go into the morass that is social media and like, you know, I get sucked into it and I'll spend half a day, you know, kind of probably getting stuff off my chest or anything, you know, and just like explaining who we are, you know, but that takes time. But I think that's part of the strategy with, you know, these accounts, right. Is to one, create confusion, but also create busy work for the folks that are actually doing good work. And so, I try to tell staff and I try to tell volunteers, let's stay above that fray. You know, let's just keep doing what we do. Let our work speak for itself and let other people decide who we are. And if, you know, somebody says you're a green decoy over here, have them come to, you know, our rendezvous or have them come to a pint night and see actually who we are and have conversations. And, you know, at, and if they still think, you know, that we're not for them, fine. But, you know, majority of these people that are talking that stuff have never even met anybody. So, and you guys aren't going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. And like, that's what I think is like the most exciting thing for me is that, you know, when I first took over and there was a thousand members and like, I, it was a pretty big leap of faith and a risk for me. And then it becomes like your baby a little bit, right? There's lots of other people, but I have the opportunity to lead this organization. It comes my baby a little bit and I get nervous. If I got hit by a bus today, as I walked to the convention center, BHA would survive and it would survive because of the people that are here. And it's the people both on staff and volunteers in our North American port that like will carry that for. And so I, I, I take great solace in that, like knowing that this thing, this movement that we've created, like you can't stop it now. It's here. Like, it's here. And yeah. so I think there was fear from me, maybe, you know, especially with some of these outside pressures that um, something could happen and we would go away, um, which have been tragic, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there's any way that happens now. What a powerful spot to be in. It feels so good when you wake up one day and go, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm here. It's, you know what happens? It happens to me again when I'm traveling, you know? And like, 
you know, wearing the public landowner's shirt or I've got these gap teeth, you know, so I'm fairly recognizable. <laughs> Is it like when people are like, oh, like, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I'm on the team, you know, and like, and I it used to happen once in a while. And the more it happens, it's like this grassroots army that we have all over, like, that is awesome. And like, you can't, like, you can't compete with that, right? Like people, well, you know, we were smaller, you guys are paper tiger, which maybe there's some validity to that. Like, again, I was saying we were punching way above our weight, but now with, you know, 40,000 members, like that's real people all over the country. And to me, like, that's like, that's exciting. And, um, uh, and again, fills my bucket. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there. Is there yeah. anything that you would like to add or to ask me? I mean, I think, I guess I would love at some point to, and that we're wrapping this up, but for you to really think about some of the public lands issues up in Canada and really think about kind of what those are to you um, and how we can engage. Because I think, you know, the way we work at BHA is the squeaky wheel kind of gets the grease, right? Where that's like, I described kind of how we started chapters is when people are banging on the door, but it's also policy-wise. And so like, what are those things and how can I utilize kind of your background and your expertise to help like our British Columbia chapter or Alberta chapter, kind of like as we're growing in Canada, which I'll fully admit I'm not an expert at. That's that, right. And as like knowing more about what's going on up there. Yeah, I've think, been in contact with those guys too, so good. that's an easy one to do. Good. I think a lot of these causes that I fought over the years are uh, public, like this falls under what BHA does. Sure. But it's so nice to actually have an organization to turn to. So I can definitely commit to that. Awesome. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that, and I've said it, a couple of times, but I'll say it again, is that none of what you and I are talking about today happened by accident. And I mean this great legacy and this kind of public land estate that we have. Like that didn't happen by accident. And it's not going to get carried forward by accident either. And so, you know, let's revel in what we have. You know, we all live like kings and queens. Like let's revel in that. But know that um, without our engagement, it's not going to go forward. So, um, you know, stay vigilant and whether that's with like with BHA or with somebody else, like I, just use your voice, you know? I and mean, I think that's the, the biggest key here is that, um, and, and in number, you know, in numbers is power. And so the more that, you know, we grow this organization, we grow this movement, I would say that's outside of BHA as well. I think we'll be just fine. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 